I'm continuing a, a series. Like, I started a series last week, which is called The Lessons We Learn. And I'll tell you this, there are always lessons that you will learn throughout your life. I'm always learning lessons. I will learn them the easy way or I learn them the hard way. I would like to say that every lesson that I have learned has been easy, but it hasn't. And I have come to find that it is always easy to learn lessons best from other people. To learn from other people's mistakes or even learn from other people's success. Is that not true? I don't want to have to go through the grief that other people went through. I want to continually be set before God and, and, and listening to what he is saying through his word. And so what happens is in the New Testament, there are things that are said about Old Testament characters. They kind of sum up their life in one sentence or one verse or whatever. And there's a number of them. I just kind of wanted to bring light to a couple of these scriptures that are in the New Testament that talk about Old Testament characters. That teach us a lesson to talk about our character. And it made me ask, like last week we talked about how, how Peter talked about Lot who was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. And how that can happen to us as well. It's a lesson that we learn. And it led me to ask a question. If there was going to be something that someone said about me in one sentence or one verse, what would it be? What would people say about me? That's a good question to ask yourself. What will be the legacy that you leave behind? You want it to be a good one. You want it to be a positive one. Many people try and do that and talk about that, and sometimes you just don't have a choice. And some people, it's kind of mentioned even on their gravestone. What's the epitaph or whatever you want to call that's going to be on your gravestone that will kind of explain what your life is? And, and there's a whole bunch. Martin Luther King basically was this, free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Do you remember Mel Blanc, the, the, the um, voice person for Looney Tunes, like he was the voice of Bugs Bunny and Sylvester and Porky Pig and, and Daffy Duck and like dozens of other people. You know what it says on his, his gravestone? That's all, folks. <laughs> That's what it says. You know what Rodney Dangerfield says? There goes the neighborhood. There's some funny ones. There's things that you kind of see. It's kind of interesting. You know, one person had on his, on his gravestone, I was hoping for a pyramid. There's another person who was an avid golfer who said, finally, a hole in one. <laughs> I like this one. It said, raised four beautiful daughters with only one bathroom, and still there was love. <laughs> There's an individual. His name was uh, John Lee Yeast, and he was kind of, he must have been a, a funny guy because he, he had on his gravestone, here lies John Yeast, pardoning me for not rising. <laughs> it's funny. What will they put on your gravestone? I, I think of uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy. He could have written his own one. He basically said this in 2 Timothy 4, 7, 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And that's what represented Paul's life, wasn't it? And so as we take a look at some of these scriptures, I ask myself, I challenge myself with the thought, I want something that I, to, that I have, like personality or whatever it was that I was supposed to do to have been accomplished. And so if you have your, your Bible apps or if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 13. 
For those of you who are not aware, Acts, the book of Acts is right after the four Gospels. And, it, and in chapter 13, it is Paul and he's talking and, and he, he's with Barnabas and he is in Antioch in a community. Funny thing about Acts chapter 13 is this. Up until Acts chapter 13, Paul was actually called Saul. He was Saul, 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 and he traveled with a fellow named Barnabas, and it was always Barnabas and Saul. Two things happened in chapter 13 of the book of Acts. It says, and Saul, who is also called Paul. He goes from being called Saul to Paul, and it goes from being Barnabas and Saul to Paul and Barnabas. So there's a switch that takes place. And as he's speaking in this synagogue, he has a couple of things that he says, and he's talking about David, the patriarch David, the King David that we know and read about so much in the Old Testament. And as he's talking to them, he says this in Acts chapter 13, verse 36. It said, David served God's purpose in his own generation. He did what he was supposed to have done. He fulfilled everything that I wanted him to do, God says. And in Acts chapter um, uh, 13, verse 22, it says, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. How many have heard that one? I've heard of David as the son of Jesse, who's, who's a man after my own heart. Now, that was also mentioned in the Old Testament, in Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. And it was a, a particular pivotal time in Israel's history that was said. And this was never said about anyone else in Scripture other than David. And that's an amazing thing because there were some incredible characters. For those of you who are unaware of the, ex the exploits and the history of David, um, there's a lot of things that we could talk about. He was the second king of Israel. He was placed there by God through, Saul, or through Samuel. Samuel was kind of the spiritual leader at that time. And the first king had disobeyed the Lord. And so all of a sudden, Samuel begins, God intervenes through Samuel, and they want to anoint another king. And so David was anointed when he was 16 years old. He became the king of Judah when he was 30 years old. And the interesting thing about this whole process of David was that he was so assuming, unassuming that when Samuel comes to visit Jesse, David's dad, and he wants to anoint a king, Jesse doesn't even invite David to the party. He leaves him out in the field and says, here are all the sons that are eligible to be king. And when none of them were found, Samuel's like, who else is there? Well, there's the kid out in the field. And as a result, David is the one who was anointed. Like, it is incredible when you see some of the things that have taken part. And most of us, when we remember David, of course, we think of David and Goliath. That seems to be the thing that most people know, whether you go to church or whether you don't, you remember that story. But scripture says that he was an incredible leader. He was a strategist. He led 30 warriors that did all these exploits. As, as a matter of fact, there was a, a, an inner core of three people who did feats that were kind of like legendary. It was incredible all the things to go in and talk to them and, and, and um, he was a brilliant musician. He was a mighty warrior. He wrote many of the Psalms. More has been written about David than any other person in the Bible. 66 chapters are dedicated to his story. Not to mention 59 instances where New Testament cites his name. And let's not forget the fact that he wrote over 70 of the Psalms. So what can I say about David 
in like a half an hour that other people haven't said. Like, it's incredible. And to realize this and to understand that this guy was called a man after God's own heart after what he had done. Now, for those, again, who you might be watching online or maybe here and someone just invited your friend, you say, who's this David? I don't know. One of the main things that happened in his life, if you read the scripture in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it says this, at a time when kings were supposed to be off to war, he was at home. And all of a sudden, his eye catches this beautiful woman. He commits adultery with this woman who is, who is the wife of one of his soldiers. And she gets pregnant. And all of a sudden, David, in trying to fix it, brings the, brings the husband home who refuses to sleep with his wife while all of his comrades are in, in war. And so David doesn't know what to do. Finally, he gets to the point where in the midst of the battle, he instructs his general to pull everybody back, and Uriah dies. So in actuality, he's murdered. So here's a guy who has all this acclaim, and yet he is known for murder, and he is known for adultery. Not only that, I don't think that he would have really ever won Father of the Year Award with some of the things that had taken place. You ever stopped and considered that one of the last things David wanted to build a temple for God, and God said, no. You're a man of war. There's so many people who died under your, under your reign that I can't really have you do it. This is a guy that is a man after God's own heart. It's kind of crazy to think of it. And see, I can't give you all the things, and I can't mention all the things that happened in David's life over 66 chapters. But I can tell you this, that when you look at the life of David and when I look at the life of David, I realize that there is hope for me and that there is hope for you and that the things that made him great and close to God are not things that were so spectacular that you can't do the same thing yourself. This is one of the most popular sermons of the Old Testament. What was it that made David a man after God's own heart? you go on the internet, you could read sermons after sermons over this particular topic. Now, of course, mine is the best. But if you want to read, no, I'm only kidding. What I wanted to do, folks, is I wanted to try and, and figure out things which were particular to David. In discussing with other people and other pastors, someone said, well, it was a humility. But, but Moses was the most humble person in the world. He wasn't called a God, man after God's own heart. Well, David prayed a lot, which is true that he did. And, and, and that, but Daniel prayed a lot, and he wasn't known as a man after God's own heart. What are the things specific to David himself that made him this type of person? Well, I think that there's four that I want to give to you. Again, it's not exhaustive. I'm going over a whole bunch of chapters of, of Scripture as well as a whole bunch of Psalms. And if you want to know David's heart, you've got to read the Psalms, man. It's kind of an important part of the, of the scenario. So if you give me a few minutes... I want to tell you four things that are about David that can also be about you, that made him the man after God's own heart. The first one this thing was that he was a person of tenacity, that he passionately served Jesus in every circumstance of his life. He served God all the time, no matter what was going on. He stubbornly served God. We think of stubbornness as a bad thing, but if stubbornness is pointed in the right direction, it is a good thing, isn't it? 
I've heard one person say this. The thing about David was that he was very good at serving God when nobody was looking. That's a good thing, isn't it? To serve God when nobody is looking. That you are just tenaciously serving him with everything you possibly can in every situation at every station, whether he was younger, whether he was older, whether he was sad, whether he was happy. Despite every obstacle, he served God with all of his heart. So what does it look like to serve God tenaciously? Well, the first thing you need to look at is the fact, this fact, that he served God in what I will call obscurity and monotony and aloneness the first quarter of his life. That he was incredibly faithful to God despite the fact that there were many times where he was alone in a desert amongst a bunch of sheep and nobody to talk to. And it was a really hard time when you go through those wilderness experiences where there is nobody else around. And I'll say this, it is not an uncommon place to be in the middle of the wilderness. And you might be at this point in the middle of the wilderness with nobody around. And he served God. The greatest lessons that David learned were in what I call obscurity, monotony, loneliness in an open field. During that time, he became a songwriter He became a brilliant musician. He articulated his heart through poetry. He endured times of loneliness. He learned how to use a sling. What do you do when you're in the middle of some type of wilderness and you got a bunch of sheep bang at you all the time? One of the things you're going to do is you're going to take a few few, uh, stones and you're going to put it in a sling and you're going to get some targets there. Really good at throwing stones. And so when you hear the story of David and Goliath, we're kind of under, under this thought that some type of miraculous or, or lucky shot happened for Goliath. I'll say this. David hit the spot that he was looking for. He was an excellent, excellent marksmith with sling because in the times when the woman was around, he was practicing. It says that he was a mighty warrior. It said he killed a bear. He killed a lion. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 18 says this. David was a skilled musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech and a handsome man, and the Lord was with him. See, God, we may not like this, but God does his greatest work in you through monotony and obscurity, being faithful to him in the menial, in the insignificant, in the routine, in the regular in the unexciting and the uneventful daily tasks of life. Life without a break, life without wine and roses, just constant, unchanging, endless hours of tired monotony as you learn to be a woman or a man of God with nobody else around, with nobody else who notices and nobody else who even cares. Those are the times when God seems to get the best in us. Chuck Swindoll says this, in the relentless demands of obscurity, character is built. Strange as it may seem, those who first accept the silence of monotony are best qualified to handle the applause of popularity. The first step is to serve him when nobody is looking. Consider this. When Samuel makes the statement that he is a man after my own heart, he was still in the fields tending the sheep. Consider that when Samuel anoints him king, 
to pay this father's son, he doesn't go to a tailor and say, saying, what do you got in purple here for my royal robe? He didn't go to the throne store and say, where is my throne? The next time you hear about David after this anointing is when King Saul wants him to play a song for him, and they say, where is he? He is still in the wilderness. Despite the fact that all this was said about him, he continued to serve him in times that were difficult, times that were monotonous. And he served God through those times, through times of panic, times when he didn't know what to do and things were upon him and he decided to serve God. He served God through times not only of panic, but times of pain. All the things that had took in place, people that he had lost in his life, people, the things that had happened in his family, some of the toughest situations that anyone would go through. And sometimes we go through those times and we say, what is the use in serving Jesus? With all this pain, why isn't he doing something? He served God through penitent times, through, through times when he blew it. I think sometimes the times when we lose most people to their faith or people deconstruct their faith is when all of a sudden they say, I can't do this. I can't serve him. I keep on messing up all the time. Could you imagine David in front of everybody being known for all the things that had happened? He said, I'm still going to serve God anyways. Still going to give him everything. Times of persecution. Can I just say something at this point? Then when God hands out pain and when he hands out those times that we really go through the tough times that really no one else knows about, they know kind of about it. Then when God hands out bad times, he doesn't dole them out evenly. That some of us, we get more than others. I don't know why. Maybe it'll be the one question that I ask or one of the questions uh, when I get to heaven. Why is it that that person had to suffer more than I did? Why did I have to suffer more than the other person? I don't know. I do know this, though. That the times when we draw closer to the Lord and the times when God is most pleased is when we serve him when other people won't. When we serve him when we have absolutely no reason to serve him. And we say, God, I'm going to serve you anyway. And you may be going through a time and you might be saying, I think God hates me. I think God is so far away. In reality, the opposite is true. Be tenacious. Be tenacious about serving God. Amen? The other one is this. David served God and gave man over God's own heart because of trusting. And that's kind of one that is, that's kind of the vanilla point, don't you think? We all kind of know that. You need to trust Jesus. You've been told that if you've gone in church, first thing that they tell you in Sunday school, you've got to trust Jesus. We write songs about trusting Jesus. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. It's rule number one. But if you read the, the part in, in, in Acts chapter 13 where it says that, that I have made David a man after my own heart, says this, because I know that he'll do everything I ask him to do. That's what it says. There's something about trust. We can talk about David's courage. Hey, who else would stand in front of a guy who was anywhere between seven to nine feet tall and take him on? Why would he do that? And he not only does that, he does that to a lion. He does that to a bear, something taking place that he trusted God somehow. You could say that he was, he was a, a man of, of faith doing all these things. But here's the thing I'll tell you about David. And if you read the scriptures, you will see this to be true. The one thing that was about David was that he was always able 
to see his God above his adversary. And that becomes an important thing. Like I said, before David and Goliath, he fought a lion, he fought a bear. After David and Goliath, if you take a look in 1 Samuel, I believe it's chapter 24, when he has the first king throwing, throwing spears at him, trying to, trying to kill him. There's a time when David comes in and cuts off his belt of the king as he, he had an opportunity to kill him. And he says this to him. He says, you know what? Be a judge between God and I. I'm not going to kill you. I am going to trust that God is going to do what he is able to do. When his son Absalom, Absalom takes over, he has the same attitude. David and Goliath wasn't the first time. It wasn't the last time. But he had the ability to, to have the perspective of faith and trust that said this. Yeah, he's pretty tall, but my God is taller. So we have a choice of our perspective. Do you see the size of your giant or do you see the size of your God? Do you see the mountain or do you see the one who created the mountain. And if you take a look at David's life, you will see that he trusted him in this unique way where he had a perspective where he saw God in front of everything. That's the second one. Third one is an important one. And it's one we need to understand. He was a man after God's own heart because of his, what we call transparency. I wanted to say truth. But it's a whole lot more than truth. Not only was he truthful, he was transparent. Transparency describes how God has the ability to see through, or you allow God to see through you. It was able to cause him to change. It made his heart pliable, required a vulnerability. Like sometimes we make the mistake of equating transparency with authenticity. The big thought today is I just need to be myself. I need to be true to myself. But there's a difference between authenticity and transparency because transparency allows God to take a look at you and change you because, folks, we all need to be changed. You can be authentic and you can be a jerk, but it just makes you an authentic jerk. <laughs> Does it not? You can be authentic and you can be a thief, but you will still be a thief. And the great mirage is that of authenticity without transparency. You come to this, this great thought that I'm going to be everything that I say that I am. Come to realize that it is empty. It is an empty room. Take a look at the heart of David as he, he says his psalms. He had the ability to, to articulate his heart every season, every circumstance, Take a look at Psalm 51, which is my favorite psalm. It's kind of given at the time when he is caught. He's caught, and he's sorry, and he's transparent before the Lord. And he says statements through that. If you have the opportunity this afternoon, read Psalm 51. And he says this in, in Psalm chapter 51, verse 6. It says, surely you desire truth in the inmost parts. It says in verse 10, later on. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Remember that song? Even verse 17, he says, you know what? I can offer you bulls. I can offer you all these things. But the sacrifice you want is a broken and a contrite heart. That you won't despise. 
to be transparent before the Lord, to allow God to see through you. I like Psalm 63, verses 1 to 3. God, you are my God. I will seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, thus I have seen you in the sanctuary. To see your power and your glory because of your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. Psalm 42, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. All those passages. Psalm 63, verse 8. My soul follows hard after you. He was transparent. He was transparent about his failures. You know, he was the king. When all this took place, he could have swept it under the carpet. He would have said, we will not talk about this anymore. This will not be in the history books of how I've messed up. But he didn't. He was transparent in his failures. He allowed everyone to see. He was transparent with God in his, his frustrations as well. You know, we read, we read Psalms, all those wonderful Psalms. You ever read Psalm chapter 88? God, where are you in this whole process? You know, he says, my Lord, do you reject me and hide my face from me? For my youth I have suffered, and being close to death I have, I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me all day long. They surround me like a flood, and they have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me, friend and neighbor. The darkness is my closest friend. Wow. Is this the same guy who kind of wrote Psalm 23? He was transparent all the time. And the reason he was transparent, because God can only work with the things that we volunteer over to him. He was transparent in his faith. You read Psalm chapter 23. You see a man of faith in the fact that he leads him even through the tough times. God is with me. I'm going to worship him. God, I want all that you have of me. And as a result, the transparency allowed him to do wonderful things. His transparency allowed him to take Mephibosheth. And maybe you don't know the story of Mephibosheth. But John, his friend Jonathan, King Saul's son, had a family. And, and, and you know, the, the normal thing that you do to king at that time is you kill off all the family because you don't want anything coming back on you. Instead, Mephibosheth, he says, come, eat at my house every day. As long as I'm here, you will be safe. The opportunity for God to see through you. world is looking for transparent people. Sometimes I have the temptation to have a level of transparency that I only want you to see. Selective transparency. I'll be really transparent in this area so that you think the rest of my life is transparent. But I'm not going to let you see this part. That's why, you know, we talk about transparent people. Very rarely do we see a real transparent person. And, and when you do meet a real transparent person, sometimes they make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Have you found that? In order for me to be truly transparent before you and for you to be transparent before anybody, you first have to be transparent before God. Isn't that true? And that's so important because we need real people, don't we, in the church? Your friends, your family, the people you're trying to reach Jesus, they're not looking so much for something which is true. They're looking for something which is real. That only comes when we go before God and say, God, see and be with everyone in me. The last one sometimes people miss. 
The other thing that made him a, a man after God's own heart was that he was thankful. You see throughout his writings and everything that he could have taken a look at the story and say, well, God, I wish you were there a little bit more at that time. But instead, he has a thought of thankfulness that our deepest praise and worship seems to stem from a heart of gratefulness. It comes from the fullest understanding of who God is and what he has done. You ever read Psalm 139? I thank you and I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. When I consider all that you have done, when I consider that, that I was, I, even in my mother's womb, you kind of knit me together. You knew the darkest thoughts. Everything about me, Father, you know. He thinks deeply on the subject and out of it comes gratitude. And some of the deepest praise and worship that you will experience will not come out of the emotion. Don't stay in the shallows of emotional worship. Allow your emotions to go deep when you consider all that God has done for you. Why was he so good at the Psalms? Because he was thankful that it allowed him to look deeply into everything that was going on and worship the Lord. The most, the time I believe that we should be most thankful is the day that you say yes to Jesus. When you stop and consider, oh, heaven is not the default. I always assume that when I die, I go to heaven. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, you are doomed for a lost eternity. Well, what do I do about that? I don't want to go to hell. Well, there is good news, gospel, good news. God loves you so much and hates your sin so much that he provided a way. He came he died on the cross, and when he died on the cross, he took your sins. He paid for those sins. And if you give your heart to him, those sins are forgotten. And not only does he bless you and work in your life and bring you joy and peace now, but you have the opportunity to worship and be with him in all of eternity. And my response to that, I don't know about you, Thank you, God. Thank you for everything that you have done for me. All the things that I don't deserve, I thank you. I thank you that you could have done all those other things, but you didn't. And when all of a sudden we begin to worship God from an angle that we understand who God is and what he has done, it allows God to move in a deeper way in our lives. And so at this point, we come to communion. We usually do communion the first Sunday of every month, and we do it because God tells us to do this regularly. And so you have um, before you, you have, hopefully you got one of these when you came in. There's a cellophane that's on the top that has the, uh, the wafer, and then the second level is that of the grape juice. And so I wanted to do something a little bit unique as we gather together to take communion. And, and if you're joining us online, feel free to grab something for yourself to be able to share communion um, with us. It says the person needs to examine themselves during communion. Take the time in communion to kind of think a little bit. And I was just thinking as I was about to take communion, God, I just want to be tenacious. I want to serve you in every situation. I want to serve you when it's not popular serving you. I want to give you everything all the time. 
I want to trust in you. I want to be able to see you above the giants. I want to be able to be truly transparent so that you can move and change me to the person that you want me to be, more like you. God, I just want to be a thankful person. And I believe that if I can have those things and practice those things in my life, that I can be a person after God's own heart. I can be a woman. I can be a man after God's own heart. So as we join communion together, this is what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25 goes on to say, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death as he comes. I'm going to take the wafer at this time. And I'm going to say thank you, God, for your body being broken for my sin. Let's participate together. So now we have the grape juice before us which is representative of the blood being shed for our sins. This is what I'd like to do. I'm just going to have a prayer of thanksgiving. I'm not too sure where you're at. I'm not too sure what you're going through. You might be going through one of the most difficult times in your life. You may have come here and said, well, I'm coming here. This is the last Sunday I'm coming here, but after that, I'm not serving Jesus. You might be online and you might be at the end of your rope. I'm not too sure exactly what is happening, what you are going through. But I want to drink this. I want to pray. I want to, I want to uh, participate together and just have a time where we say, we breathe that prayer. God, have all of me. So, Father, I just pray in Jesus' name over every person, every life, every soul. There may be people who don't know you and they would like to know you. And, Lord, they can know you before they leave the service today. I just ask, God, that you will bless every single person where they're at, Father. And I pray for an encouragement upon their soul to serve you. It is not impossible to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. Lord, just equip us with everything, Father, so that we can serve you, we pray. In Jesus' name, let's participate together. Father, we praise you. Father, we worship you. In the good times and the bad times, I worship you. And the challenge is, God, I worship you. In front of the nine-foot giants, God, I give you everything. In the midst of the turmoil, God, I give it to you. I feel like giving up, God, but I want to give it to you. You died for my sins, oh God. God, I sit here today transparent before you. Allow your spirit to move. Give me a thankful heart, oh God. Do great things in hearts and lives today, we ask. Praise you, Father. Praise you, Father. Holy Spirit, do your work. Have your way, I pray. Praise you, Father.
Praise you, Father. Praise you, Father. Please stand at this time. I just want to say right now that these altars are open to anyone who needs prayer or anyone who just wants to pray. So if you're here and you don't need to know Jesus and you want to know Jesus, come on up to the front. We'll sit we'll pray together. If you're here and you have a bondage or you have something in your life and you need the power of God, come on up and pray. Nobody's going to care about what you're coming up for. You're just wanting to come up because you want to get closer to Jesus. So we just open up the altars. Just pray that God will move in your life. I just pray a blessing upon this congregation. I pray for the power of God to move. Holy Spirit, we pray that you will move. Those who are online, Father, joining us online, I just pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit to be upon their lives. Oh God, we give you everything at God, asking that you will move in a powerful way. Amen.